Hello, thinkers, readers, and tea drinkers, and welcome to Speaking with Joy. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Clarkson, and this is a podcast dedicated to art, literature, theology, and good conversations. It is my hope to create an hour of sanity, fascination, and beauty in our hectic and cynical world. So make yourself a cup of tea, and let's dive in. large enough or a book long enough to suit me, C.S. Lewis. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Speaking with Joy. Today I am joined by my excellent, wonderful fill-in, I have so many more adjectives that I could fill in, but it, it may take too long, sister. Oh. Which is very fun. And we are sitting with large cups, not of tea, but of coffee. A very good, strong coffee. Because we're being realistic about a life and what and there are at least two sick babies in this house. There are, out of three, who are three, three and under, so, and so coffee is necessary. So we do love tea, but from time to time, life requires coffee. It does indeed, but it's better out of big cups. Out of big, kind beautiful of cups big with China roses on cups. them. Yes, indeed. Well, um, I'm happy to have you all here with us. Um, the last few episodes I have recorded, I have in fact recorded where both me and the guest were in fact drinking some kind of hot beverage. Oh, lovely. And Yeah, and I feel like it does aid the conversation. It does indeed. So today, Sarah and I are going to talk about many things, um, chief amongst which is big books, big, long books. Yes. Why to read them, why they are so long, uh, why you should not feel guilty about reading books that aren't very, very long, mm. um, and many other things in between. But before we get to that, I think it would be helpful to have... Um, a little background on all of the interesting things you're doing lately. For 15 years, you have been writing um, in various places about the role of literature. You've been writing about many things, but one of <laughs> one of the things that you have written about a great deal is the ways that literature and fiction and poetry can shape our intellectual and spiritual lives. I think mostly because it was how, how I felt I was deeply shaped, and so I just kept wanting to write about it. Yes, and of course... You know, I can say that in a very professional grown-up. These are the published <laughs> things. But for me personally, you are the oldest of our clan, and I'm the youngest. And many of my childhood memories are shaped by you showing me beautiful literature. Um, I remember there was a period when we lived in, I think it was Tennessee, and you read, was it Kidnapped or... Oh, we did. We started Kidnapped, and then I think we did The Great Divorce. Yes, and you read that out loud to us, and by us, I mean me and Nathan. <laughs> and, um, and we would sometimes go out and enact the scenes outside, I think, afterwards. Yeah, indeed. And so, so for as long as I can remember, you have been a source of, of course, many things as an older sister, but one of the, one of the great gifts of your life has been to give me good books and help me know how to love them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's the sharing of them. I feel like now you're supplying me with all the good novels. You've been my source for my favorite novels of the past year. Oh, have I indeed? Which novels were well, those? Well, you were the one who did Once Upon a River, mm -hmm. and I literally loved The Giver of Stars. Was that one of them? Wasn't it fun? It was so much fun. You've been my provider of, of the good novels I needed to get me through lockdowns. Well, that feels like a great honor because I feel like it's like being able to tell your mentor that finally something they didn't know because you have always <laughs> been my, my source for novels, so... It's very fun that um, that you feel that you've enjoyed the, the novels I've recommended to oh, you. I have. Um, so, with that, tell people a bit about 
what you do, who you are, and what you write about lately? Mm. I think I'm always a writer and I'm always curious about how stories are shaping us. I'm so shaped by stories myself and find myself, I think part of it is I just have been immersed in great stories and they have shown me the truest things about the world. So I want to understand how that happened and why. Mm. So I, at the moment, have just, um, I guess earlier in June, I have to get, I get my dates mixed up because I published a book and then birthed a baby and they kind of get mixed up in my head. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think the, the book the came metaphor, first. The metaphor came to life. You know, people it are did. talking it really about did. books and babies. <laughs> and there's, there's real truth in the metaphor, mm. I think. But my latest book was This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks Into Our Darkness, which is in many ways about beauty, sometimes often in the form of stories, mm. how it became the way I really, I feel, got my hands around God's presence and continuing kindness to me. Um, even in the midst of mental illness and depression mm. and many things like that. So that has just come out. And then um, I'm, I'm having a rather delightful time right now. I've wanted to do these for years, but I'm doing I'm, my second of, uh, it's this, this, just my second so far, but I have a whole series in my head. They're called Novel Theology Seminars. Mm. And I'm taking, so I studied theology for mm. yay five long years at Oxford. Mm. Came to it quite late in life, was totally surprised by it, and then fell in love with it. But I still feel like the way I understand theology the best mm. is by bringing it into conversation with novels. Mm. So I'm doing a series of talks called Novel Theology. Mm. And uh, we did Hannah Coulter in the Incarnational Life last time. And I'm doing Theodicy and Tolkien next and plan many more things. And then I'm also doing um, a Patreon, which is a kind of a book, a book club. So my, mm. my other book, Book Girl, was just a celebration of the reading life. And I think I've always wanted an actual community in which to mm. express that. So... I'm doing a, a book girl fellowship with with uh, monthly videos <clears throat> on different novels and aspects of literature, and then discussions and all sorts of fun things. Yes, and I'm going to join that because I want to get weekly newsletters. And so, are you all actually reading through Book Girl, or is it just is that more? Kind no, of... at the moment, what we're doing is we're just doing. So I'm doing two videos a month, mm -hmm. and we do themed discussions. So mm. our first one was Words Make Worlds, and mm. I looked at the books that really shaped my ideas of language and story. Mm. And we talked about Tolkien's essay on fairy and mm. some of Barfield's ideas about consciousness. And um, last time we did my autumn reads. Sometimes mm. I do one novel that I'm loving. Um, sometimes I do a series of children's books. Mm. Um, but we do those as kind of a basis for discussion, and mm -hmm. um, and I think it will grow as I figure out exactly how I want to shape it, but that's what we're starting. I know. I think when I first started my Patreon, I I had in my mind, well, I must do lots of content, and of course you will create beautiful content, but half the fun of Patreon is just having a space that's a little bit smaller and more intimate yeah. to have really interesting conversations. Like actually, in some ways, almost being more in a physical space in a funny yeah. sort of way, mm -hmm. like being in a room with someone. Yeah. Um, and I'm... Uh, if the case isn't abundantly clear, Sarah is an amazing writer, and I don't know why I'm feeling the need to tell a story, but I'm going to tell the story that when you were at <laughs> Oxford, uh, you would submit for these creative writing competitions. Yes. Uh, at, do you mind me telling you this story? It's <laughs> fine. And um, and they were they were blind, they were blind reviewed like nobody knew who was doing it. And Sarah yeah. won it three won this Beekner Frederick Beekner Prize three years in a row. Uh, four. Years. Four. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. <laughs> years in a row uh, because she's just she is a poet she she oozes 
poetry and prose and beauty and depth and um you were so, immensely kind my sister no i'm i'm incredibly accurate um so everyone should go read her her beautiful books <laughs> and i will say that you know our our conversation is going to get more into big long books and how to read them but if you're someone who wants to be better read wants to develop your intellectual life um your writing in general is a good place to start but i do think book girl is quite a good Kind of I, entry to celebrating the reading life, thinking about why it's important, how to how to do it. Yeah, I think I wrote it mostly because I am. Um, so I did a lot of writing about children's books and children's mm-hmm. literature, and then I would talk to moms who are my age and mm-hmm. other adults, kind of in that, who said, "I want to be a reader, but I don't but really how, do I begin? how and how where do you start?" And so yeah. it's kind of a, "What is the reading life, and why mm-hmm. do we all love it, and what is the adventure?" And yes, yeah. but I just love seeing you right now because I feel like you are a very fecund season where <laughs> books and and novel theology how fun that is i know and patreons and of course you also have three hobbits i do i have three adorable hobbit children uh, lillian samuel and lucy and they are my little they are little hobbit children they have say they run around with bare feet and kind of wild hair mm. and they like to eat a lot and they have cute bellies and we do lots of stuff <laughs> in the garden and we do lots of quests and adventures and then we come in and drink hot chocolate and read books Yes, they are just as charming as they sound. Something is always happening. New words are always being acquired. <laughs> Something is indeed. always being... And Lillian, um, last year I started telling her stories. At, at um, yeah, As we're going to talk about stories and books and novels. Last year, to get her to eat, because she, she was a bit of a picky eater, uh, I said, well, why don't I just tell you a story and you can keep eating, eating. while I tell you the story. <laughs> And so then I told her, I ended up telling her five stories, and she ate almost her whole plate of, almost, you know, let's not get too, not too optimistic, almost her whole plate of snacks. And and then, since then, every time I see her, she'll go, can you tell me a story? She also thinks it is the natural right now of the dinner table. So she sits there and was like, I have my dinner. Right. Who's going to tell, <laughs> tell me a story? So the love of story runs deep. It I does guess, indeed. What we're saying. Well, stories, I mean, they make sense of the world. They certainly do. They certainly do. You know, um, yes, they certainly do. So much more can be said about that. But I'm going to pause my brain before it goes off into a galaxy brain thing. And so we wanted to do this podcast specifically for a long time. And it's funny because I found myself recording numerous podcasts in the last two weeks in various forms of like uh, chaos. So I, I recorded a podcast with a friend that I wanted to record for a long time in my dining room filled with boxes. Um, and now I am flying out of the country in low three days, but we decided it was time that we couldn't escape without doing Seize this. the moment. Seize the moment. So we want to talk about big, long books. Yes. The glory of big, fat novels. Do you like big, long books, Sarah? I love big, long books. I think they're a lot of work. I think that they demand a lot of you as a reader, but I think there's a glory to them. And I think that when you come out the other side, you find yourself looking at the world slightly different mm-hmm. and standing with it in, you know, on your path in life in a slightly mm-hmm. different stance because of these companion novels. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And the reason, part of the reason I wanted to do a podcast about this is I'm very, as we may have already sounded like we are, I'm very into people finding ways into loving reading, mm. cultivating their souls, um, yeah. learning more about the world, immersing yourself in different worlds. And I actually think that's something that stands in, a, in the way of a lot of people doing that is that they think, I should be a reader. Mm. What do readers read? They read Charles Dickens. Yes. I'm going to pick up this very long book. Yes. And then they get stopped in the book and they go, I guess I cannot be a reader. No, but here's the, this is the wrong premise. You are a reader. Yes. All people have been made to have brains that 
interact with language and words. Mm-hmm. We are all people's stories. Our parents are telling mm-hmm. our stories from the first day we're born. Yeah. We are all shaped by language. The question is not, are you a reader? It's, what shall you read? And what words yes. shall shape your story? And what kind of reader will you be? Exactly. And so I'm, I'm always keen to say, when people are getting going in the reading life, uh, I think Alan Jacobs says, read by whim. I think that's such a, I think that's so healthy. Yeah, and say, if you like a book, you know, obviously... You want to shape your literary appetites so that you're not always eating literary popcorn. But generally speaking, if you like something, read it. Um, and if you're really having a hard time reading something, then give it a little break. Give it a little break, yeah. Or or, or get help. Yeah, or get help. But Find somebody so who wants to talk about it with yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. So you know, um, I'm I'm much into people not feeling guilt. However, I then mm. feel like once people have started liking reading, there are some very good long books. Yes. And that people are afraid of because they're long, but there's so much richness in them they could join. And I think that the more we read, it's 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 the further up and further in life. Yeah. I mean, you. I think that's the, the beauty of reading is it really reflects the pilgrim nature of our existence, but you're always learning and growing. Yeah. And now, one thing I wanted to say is talking about why books are long. So let's talk about some of our, some long books we think are worthwhile. Mm. Well, I know the one we're both going to say. What, what are you going to say? I would say Middlemarch by George mm. Eliot. Oh, it's amazing. Someone once asked me how I, what I thought about it, and I, I kind of spluttered for a moment, and then was like, I feel like it's like the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> what did that mean for you? I think what I felt was like she had captured, um, she had really gotten into the nitty-gritty of human motivation mm. and human foible and mm. our desires and our needs, and she had all these different contrasting characters mm. um, who have these deep desires and... Some are greatly motivated by ideals, and some are motivated by pride and insecurity, and some by mm. a desire for success. But she really mm. reveals the human heart in a way that feels almost scriptural to me. Mm. You know, you know the dividing of this and that, and showing how these these deep hungers in ourselves they they can be hidden, but they cannot be concealed forever. Mm. They can't be suppressed forever. They'll bubble no, out. and and I think in that sense too. Like I, I always say that I think Middlemarch is a novel of marriages as well. There's three mm. marriages in the book, mm. and I think if you compare them, mm. you have such a commentary on mm. what love is, what human thriving is, mm. what what it means to love well or mm. to love wrongly. Mm. But um, I feel like her scope, it's a compassionate scope, but mm. it's an incisive scope. She's she neither spares you, her no. reader, her, her characters, but neither does she, uh, and I think this was very much part of George Eliot's mm. driving force, but she wanted to look at it with compassion. Absolutely. And I think the thing that's interesting about Middlemarch is that it has that depth and that breadth that you're yeah. describing, that biblical profundity. But all in all, the story is about a fairly small mm. scope. It's only a few people... Well, in it's, a town, it's, it's biblical scope in a village. Yeah, and yet it, you know, and yet it contains vastness. Yeah, now you've got a book like that, and then we were talking earlier about another big long book that's worthwhile would be Dante's mm, Divine um, Comedy. Divine Comedy, which of course is immensely long, and in contrast to the kind of, you know, specificity and quotidian nature of Middlemarch, you know, Dante's comedy is literally trying to describe. Heaven, heaven hell, and earth, and hell, and everything yeah. in between, <laughs> and, and the cosmos, and how love works, um, and yeah. But that's another. It's so it's interesting to think about how different these different long books can be, and how yeah. worthwhile they can be for their different forms. Yes. 
And um, I think form is a good word because yeah. they come to us in different. Well, and that's something I think I think is helpful thinking about long books is why are books long? You mm. know, and a, a lot of times when we think about long books, we think about we were talking about the kitchen Victorian novels, right? Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> we think an of, age of long books. Yeah, we think of Middle March would fall into that, right? Yep, a lot um, of the Dickens books. A lot of the Dickens books, even a lot. Pretty of, much almost any Victorian novel, well, yeah, is is really long. You yeah. know, it, even like the Russian stuff is falls in that. The Trollops, the yeah, Russians. the Trollops, the Russians, you know, Dostoevsky, um, Tolstoy. Now, yeah. but what's funny is the reason they're all so long, is that they weren't released as books. Almost none of those they were released as serial stories in newspapers or magazines. So, um, you so when you think about how long they are, I think it's. Well, the way I always describe it is it's, it is proportionate to like TV shows versus movies. Mm. And this is actually a direct correlation because <laughs> I was doing a little bit of study on the development of TV and you had this development that went from serial, serial stories to serial shows on Broadway and things like that, that to serial radio shows to serial oh, television. TV shows. So the seriality, kind of the idea of releasing a story a little bit at a time over a protracted period um, is is a classic form. Very much uh, so. But if you're doing that, you're going to write a lot more than if you were writing people to read in just yes. one book. So, which, this is the thing. I think that helps you if you know that's the form. Yes. If you know that's why it's so long, you kind of approach it differently. Very much so. And I think, I think you give yourself the grace to read it. Episodically. Episodically, or in a more laid-back way. And I would even say, like, I think... Well, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but mm-hmm. I think The Brothers Karamazov mm. is one of the great novels mm. that should be read. Yeah. However, I, I'm i sure that there are many people who can enjoy it sitting down in a single session. I can't. No. For <laughs> also, many reasons. It's very long. Many, it's, it's, very, very heady. it's also very heady. And yeah. You, I find that after one chapter, I kind of need to sit back and think a bit. Yeah. But I give myself grace when reading those. I will often, with a, a novel like that, I think the first time I read it, it took me six months. And yeah. I definitely read other books in between because I needed... It needed time. Yeah. Also, a thing with the Russian novels that's helpful to know is that there are better and worse translations. There are. That is a very helpful thing to know. Do your research on translations. It makes yeah. a huge difference. Yeah. Because I think I started... I think it was Brothers Karamazov. I started it, and I just couldn't get through it, and then I changed translations, and yes. I liked it. I think I did the same with Anna Karenina, and then all the characters kept saying things like, my good fellow. And I was like, <laughs> I don't feel like this is very true to Russian Yeah. You're just imagining... Yeah. So just... <laughs> That's very British. That's that's not Russian. We're going to look for a different translation. My good fellow. My good fellow. Um, that's so funny. So yeah, so that's something I was thinking about. And I think um, with that in mind, if you think about it with a correlation of like television and movies, yes. you know, a movie is, you might have a movie that's longer than an episode of a TV show, but you wouldn't be like, oh no, I can't watch The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan because I haven't finished um, every episode of Lost. No. You would watch The Dark Knight because it is a worthy novel to yeah. be read. You might read it. You might enjoy it in a. And I don't know why those were the two TV shows that came to mind. Or <laughs> the two that shows. Was very interesting. And I mean, honestly, they're not very me shows. Like I was the Dark Knight is. I love The Dark Knight, but yeah. Lost them. Kind of, mm. Yeah. Um. So I guess what, what would be a better one? I I haven't watched Babette's Feast or Chocolat. I guess I'm thinking about food because we're going to lunch mm. after this, um, because I haven't watched all seven. Lark Rise to Caliphate. Yeah, yeah. Four Four seasons seasons, Lark Rise to Caliphate. So, yeah. So, (laughs) episodic. It's okay to take a long time to read. Well, and also, I I get tickled. I um, I had a friend who years ago was reading Ben-Hur, and she was just like, Sarah, 
the white camels. <laughs> I just don't know how many more pages I can read about the white camels. <laughs> and I think you have to realize there was a scope in, in past times before yeah. we had media for just running off on a tangent. And yeah. I, I will say, I think there's great value in reading the tangents. Mm-hmm. However, I have been known to skip the tangents. Yeah. And they really significantly disparted from the story and I really needed to. So in Les Miserables, which is a, I was just gonna say that. a profoundly beautiful novel, it goes through this first part, you get into it, and then it stops. And I think I counted it was 80 pages. It describes the battlefield yes. of Waterloo. Not the battle, there's the another, battlefield. There's another, so, I think it was that. No, it, that's right. And then there's another long section about sewers. Yes. And so <laughs> I think at not that point plot, I was like, not just... I actually want to finish this book. Uh-huh. And if I have to finish 80 pages at this point in my life about the battlefield of Waterloo, I will not. Yeah. So I'm going to cordially skip this bit and then keep going. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I was, I did the exact same thing. I read, um, Les Mis, I read the first 200 pages. Oh, which are surpassingly beautiful. Are sur- I mean, they're some of the best, most beautiful writing storytelling. Yes. I read the first 200 pages in like a fever dream while I had yes. jet lag. <laughs> and then I got to the bit on Waterloo and I was like, what? 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 Wait, take and me you back. On, and you keep on thinking, Maybe there's something important in here. And <laughs> I'm going to keep reading because I'm going to figure I'm sure it out. I'm going to miss something. Um, and I don't know. Have you ever figured out what was important in it? It's been too long. I probably shouldn't I comment. Think, but I, I think don't at remember the very end, there's a bit where you learn relevant. about Thenardier. Yes, but I think that... Yes, but, but yes, like, I do think that was part but, of it. But, I mean, ultimately, don't you kind of know that Thenardier is I a bad dude? <laughs> like, do you really need to know that he picked stuff off corpses? Anyway, um, all that I'll to say... say. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to occasionally skip bits. Well, and just to note the cultural context in which they were written. They could go on yeah. tangents. And these were things that would also be more familiar to everybody at that age and era. Yeah. Um, just, you know, know that going in. I think sometimes long novels get a bad rap because they have these sections. And I just want to say, tangle with them as you will. Yeah. Well, and I also think that there is a value to some, I won't say necessarily for the Battle of Waterloo, <laughs> but to some stories for recognizing that our attention span is much shorter. Yes. And that it's actually perhaps good for us to be willing to sit with a long description that we usually wouldn't yes. be. Because it might <laughs> slow our pace down. It might make us more contemplative. It might help us immerse ourselves in a perspective that's different from our own. And so yeah. there's the mixture of it's okay to skip Battle of Waterloo. But also think about what might actually submitting to a longer book do for me. Well, I think this is where you know you go to the you kind of shift a bit to what is the gift of long novels? Mm. What is the gift of kind of inhabiting the mind, I think, of people of past ages? And I think they have a capacity for contemplation and for developing an idea or a thought mm. over many chapters, over days of contemplation. Mm-hmm. That's something I love in, in long novels like Dickens or Eliot. Mm. They're, they're commenting on an idea throughout the story, mm-hmm. and they, they don't have the immediacy and the distraction we have in our age, and so they're developing their thoughts throughout mm. this whole long novel. And if the more you walk with it, mm. the more you find the thought developed in yourself, and the more you find the conversation yeah. continuing. And so I think we're kind of offered this interesting grace of being allowed to sojourn for a bit mm. in a consciousness and a language much yeah. slower and richer, and um, there's space for development than yeah. our than our own sometimes has. Well, and I think that's a good point also that gets to why we read novels. Because I, I often have people tell me, well, I don't read novels because I don't know what to get out of them. Like, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's kind of this very practical. And I understand that impulse, you know, people want to better themselves and everything. But I think the problem with that is the idea that the really important thing in a novel is 
the idea, the principle, the maxim. Like you're trying to extract something. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and what I always want to say is if the important thing in a novel or a work of art were the maxim, the, you know, whatever, then you could just have somebody tell you the maxim and you would get the same yeah. thing. You could have somebody... I think that's how we approach in our very scientific age. Story, poetry, music. Well, just give me, just strip away all the stuff that's around it and give me We're the truth. Pillagers, where yeah. we go in and... As if you could. Yeah, as if you could. But that, that's the thing is, I think that the true gift that novels have to give us is precisely that they don't have that to give us. Yeah. That the medium, we, the form, is, yeah. is part of their communication. You can't strip that away to get to yeah. some pith. And that, and that actually submitting to... I did this section of PhD and it was so fun reading all these different literary theorists. So they use all these different metaphors, you know. Mm. Lewis says very dutifully as a scholar, you know, you must um, you must give yourself as objectively and fully as you can to, you know, like a good schoolboy to, you know, to the learning of whatever the book has to teach you. And then Martha Nussbaum says you have to give in to the seductive like <laughs> invitations of the book, and um, and Wayne Booth talks about it as a friendship, but this sense that you are developing a relationship and mm. responding to invitations yeah. of a text. And if it were a person, you wouldn't be like, get to the point. Well, give, give me what you have. you know. And if you yeah. did, it would be a very transactional relationship. The point is that you develop this relationship with the book. You you respond to it. You give into its world. You, you It's formative. And it's, it's that yeah. very process that's formative. Yeah. It's not some thing that you get out of it. It's, it is a practice. Well, that's why I think I, I'm so driven to write about the spiritual implications, the theological mm. implications, because I think often... You know, we come to the idea of theology or doctrine. Mm. It's like, just let me have the 10 points that are true yeah. and let me know the 10 things and I'll be fine. And actually, most of scripture doesn't come to us that no. way. Scripture is poetry and lament and story. Mm. And um, and I think it comes in that form because we are embodied stories. Mm -hmm. We are living, the way we understand truth is by singing it, by mm -hmm. telling the tale of ourselves, by weaving the story of our lives. Yeah. And, and that's not yeah. a more, it's not that that's just a more circuitous way to get into the really important thing, which no, is this, an idea. This is truth. It is. That is the truth. That is the truth. The it truth is. comes to you through. And, and our idea that truth must be only a list of, you know, things, things we, we can, can approve assert or disapprove. Or tenet, those, that's, a, that's based on a, you know, entirely modernist uh, idea yeah. of what truth is. Yeah. And I think also, so this makes me think about reading scripture. Mm. I feel like our way of reading scripture is often so warped as you were saying, by that kind of sense of, I need to go in, I need to get an application, I need to get out. Um, and sometimes I wonder, I mean, when you look at scripture, we are given Jesus' life, and he gives us parables, and he gives yeah. us, we're not just given a list of things to believe or not believe. No, but the prophets are primarily laments, and yeah. you know these outcries for justice, and the Psalms are basically... The inner emotions of the human heart laid bare. Yeah. And Genesis is as strange as any yeah. ancient literature you've ever encountered. Yeah. And, and, know, and I wonder and if Job some... is just an aching cry in the dark as he's yeah. wrestling with a God he can barely imagine. Yeah, and, and we think it ends well, but does it end well? Does it? Or... Are, are the strings tied up in the end? Does it make it better? I don't think there's any strings really tied in No, Job, there aren't. Honest, yeah. But there's great beauty encountered. Yeah. And, and so I wonder if one of the things, one of the gifts that literature can give us is that it makes us reapproach those texts more as they were meant to be approached. I think literature in many ways allows us to encounter scripture as we're meant to encounter it. Yeah. Encounter it. Yeah. I think it often leads us back because I think the way I often see it is scripture is the true story of the world. It mm. is the great epic novel that mm. is not only being told, but is telling us mm. the more we interact with it. But 
I think that often a great piece of literature can make us hunger for what is my story? How mm. is that told? How did, how is that shaped? And that mm. often leads us back to yeah. the seeking of the great mm. story, true story of the world. This makes me think of um, when I stayed with you all last year, I had to come, when I came back to the UK, I had to quarantine for two weeks and I stayed with you all, which is when I began telling Lillian her stories and I think they were they were fun, funny happy um, stories. Funny happy stories. Yes. <laughs> um, and amidst the funny happy stories, I told her a lot of stories. But then I started telling stories where she was in the stories, and those were La La stories, and she liked those best. And I remember having this really clarifying moment um, that I actually wrote about in my new book, where I've been telling her all these stories, and then at one point Lillian came up with a picture of Gwynny, and she said, "Who is this?" Because, you know, Gwenny is one of our dearest people. She's yeah. been in our lives for my whole life. She's been my, mom, my mom's best friend. And and you said, well, this is Gwenny. Um, she's one of our people. We love her. And I had this moment of realizing that you were helping Lillian understand the story that she was in. You know, well, and the hysterical thing about that is that I often felt when I was with Gwen, because mm. we would go visit her with her mother who had Alzheimer's, mm. Um, that Gwen would narrate me to her because mm-hmm. Larla could Larla Gwen's mom couldn't remember mm-hmm. us necessarily, but Gwen mm-hmm. would be the one who, would, in so many ways, modeled that by saying, "Oh, this is Sarah. She's our girl. Here's Joy. She's our girl." Mm-hmm. And to which Larla responded with usually with great equanimity and happiness. She would, and she would just kind of unquestionably reach out and pat us. Yeah. And I think that's partly where I learned it. So I think that's what's really fun is realizing, yeah. oh, I can narrate her to my child. Yeah. And but but I think that just reflects this. The profundity of that need yeah. for story that, you know, Lillian has a appetite, which again, it's kind of like with you having your baby at the same time as having your book, the appetite for story was matched with Lillian with the appetite <laughs> for snacks yep. and that, that, that all, action all kind of was interwoven. Yeah. Um, but that we need, we need stories because we love them. Yeah. I was thinking recently about how I consume stories almost as regularly as food. Mm, and I always have a novel going. I have a novel going on my bedside story. I'm usually watching, you know, yep. I'm usually watching a show. I'm usually, there's, we just are always. I feel bereft and yeah. slightly hangry. Yeah, we're just. Spiritually hangry. If yeah. I don't have a good novel. Exactly. And, and so we have this great hunger for story and to know what story we're in. And, and we have this story as Christians, but we also have to practice. I think, I think reading novels helps us practice reading the world helps us practice deeply so and recognizing the storied nature of our lives yeah that we are not a list of doctrinal tenets to be accepted no we are people of sorrow and love and hungers and desires and we are on a pilgrim journey and there's a there's dark things and there's bright things but there's an ending coming and we hope it will be a happy one exactly and something else that i um i think about with novels is when i've experienced times of great doubt in my life i would sit around trying to make myself believe things about God and would find that that was very useless, usually. Um, and I left in a greater state of anguish than before. But then I would read something, mm. and it just made belief possible. Well, I've told this story many times in many different places, but when I was kind of at one of my worst crises, I, I stopped reading the Bible. It was, mm. you know, rebellious little Christian girl thing to do. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't read it anymore. And so I started reading Lord of the Rings instead. <laughs> and I think God conspired because <laughs> that was only going to lead me to mm. eternal and true and beautiful things. Mm. But it allowed me to live in a place of tension between my doubt and my fear and the belief that there was goodness. And ultimately I found myself 
thinking, well, if God, if Tolkien created Middle Earth and God created Tolkien, then God's story must be even better than Middle Earth. So. <laughs> yes, which I think is an effect it had on many people. Well, we've gotten far off on our journey from <laughs> getting back to big books. <laughs> you should read them. Um, Absolutely. What are some, let's, first of all, let's share, we've already talked about some of them. What are some of your favorite good books? Wait, we'll start with another question. Okay. What are some big books people could start with? Um, I think David Copperfield is a really good big book to start with mm-hmm. because it is a sort of one that you start and then you kind of want to binge watch it in mm-hmm. that sense. Yeah. If you um, were to do the, the parody. If, if you were going the, to do the, the yeah. Analogy. Um, David Copperfield, Dickens, it's one of his brightest and yeah. best. It's fascinating. And it's it's a good one. It carries you along. The pace is really um, kind of a galloping. Yeah. And it's, it's humorous. It's humorous. Oh, this is another thing. People forget that big long books are often funny. They they oh, approach so them, funny. They approach. I think we are so used to approaching things like textbooks. Oh my goodness! That Dickens is hysterical, and he's like a cartoonist. Some oh, of his characters are cartoons. Yes, you just have to read it, and you can't read it with a literalist. You can't. You have to read it with a sense of humor. Don't yeah. don't be an, an unfunny. Yeah. You don't know, be a wet blanket. Modern wet blanket reader. I think it was Lewis said that he always thought of the modern era of literature as dull and everything else was golden so we must not be dull readers <laughs> um, i love um chesterton talks about you know fairy tales and this and that and he says that children are able to be enchanted by anything mm. you know whereas you know adults kind of need a little bit of and he says the only person that could really enjoy a modern novel would be a child <laughs> <laughs> because they're so enchanted by anything, anything a lot of modern novels are very boring about the rest of us um it's anyway, funny yeah it's, if you find a caricature and you think this is tongue-in-cheek or sarcastic, it probably, probably is. is. It's meant also, to be over the top so that you see the funny sides of human life. Betsy Trotwood is one of my favorite Oh, Betsy Trotwood <laughs> is amazing. If yeah. only I could meet Betsy Trotwood in real life. I know. She's so wonderful. She's so great and so funny. And um, you'll have to read David Copperfield if you want to find out who, who Betsy, Betsy Trotwood, Trotwood is. And why she has such a hatred for donkeys. For donkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, no, I love David Copperfield. And also, that book I loved because... It's, it is a book about people who don't, quote-unquote, contribute to society. Like, I know there's many different ways yes. to read it. But there's all these characters who you kind of go, well, why are they worth something? Why are they worth effort? Why are they... It really confronts our desire to get to the calculate pit of everything worth. and calculate yeah. worth. Yeah. And, no, I love David Copperfield. I've read it. I read it. Um, I listened to it on tape. There's a really good audiobook of it with... Uh, is it Richard Armitage? Is that his name? Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, on Audible. I listened to that during the lockdown. Um, okay, now, while we're talking about Dickens, both of us agreed before being on here. Don't... Oh, please don't start with, with great expectations. No, it's Sorry. so creepy. It's really my least favorite of the Dickens, and I feel like it's on all of the official reading lists, and I don't know why. I think the only reason it is is because it's not as long. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, but of all the Dickens, I really dislike that one. I don't even remember if I finished it, but I just remember it's just incredibly weird. It's incredibly weird, and I feel like he was working something out somehow. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for Freudian uh, analysis, but if I were, that would be where I would go. Man, same. Oh. Now, I will put in a plug here for another Dickens novel, mm. which I think is also kind of considered more academic, but mm. I love Bleak House. I do too. Bleak House. And, and I would like to say something. I think that we often approach characters in old novels as, oh, those poor Victorian people weren't as enlightened as we were. And um, 
I think you should submit yourself to the world yeah. of the novel and ask yourself, perhaps... It has me to teach me. If there's something we should be learning from these people that we think of as suppressed or yeah. not fully embodied, or maybe they understood something about virtue, because that's one of the things about Bleak House I Love, yeah. is this examination mm. of virtue and goodness, mm. and what does goodness look like, and what does power mean, and what does mm. love mean. Yeah, and something that's really cool about Dickens, too, is that his books had a very manifest impact on his society. So um, that that book, uh, so it's about, on the face of it, a very boring thing, which is just this, like, estate case, this yes. will that no one can figure, it's been going on for years and years and years, and the courts don't want to resolve it because all the lawyers and all the courts are making money off of it. And this was apparently quite a common thing at that yeah. era. And the, um, and so the book actually sparked a court reform. Amazing. Isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, it's um, And several of his other books did that as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's a beautiful book, and it's very interesting. I also read somewhere, I'm curious what you think about this, that he read, I don't think I'm making this up, I think the time time, time zones, time period would make sense. He read Jane Eyre. Yes. Would that make sense? Time? I think it would. I think it would sound like that. I'm going and blank, he felt yes. that it was slightly unrealistic that she would have such a... Um, strong mm. sense of what was right or wrong given her background that was so abusive and harsh. Hmm. Now, of course, I'm a little bit like, you know, Dickens, It's I believe this is a case of mansplaining. You should not try to mansplain to Charlotte Bronte what a woman is capable of. <laughs> However, Esther is a picture of someone who does have that, she has a very similar background to, yeah, to Jane Eyre. So. And she does, she is strong, she is loving, she does come, but she has to kind of battle to be able to believe herself well, and I think that's part of what the book is, is her image of herself is, mm. is so, um, yeah, she, her, her evolving image of herself throughout the book is a fascinating thing yeah. and her evolving sense of self and capacity yes. is a fascinating thing. And part of what I love about it is that it's something she can only come to in relationship with others Yes, and she can't come to an independent and whole self apart from being loved and known. Yeah. And I actually thought that was a very... Because I love, I love Jane Eyre. But there's some real weird things in Jane Eyre. There's some real individualist things in Jane Eyre that yeah. I think there's a little... There's a, a loneliness, I understand, to it. And yeah. there's kind of the inner woman in solitude. But there's also an extremity, I think, that comes when we're not in, ex, in conversation mm. and community. She reminds me sometimes of myself when I've mm. been in very isolated periods of my life and feeling fast and dramatic things. Yeah. But I probably needed somebody to bring me a cup of tea and... Make yeah. me go watch a comedy. Exactly. And I think that Esther is this beautiful example of someone who comes to have an image of herself that is, despite all of her experiences and the many people who told her wrongly, that is more confident and beautiful and, and is able to reject evil when she sees it. But to me, it's a little bit more of a realistic trajectory of yes, how you would get there. Yes. Yeah. And that she's still going to have these you know moments of insecurity. And yet she becomes increasingly powerful. And that's one of the things yeah. I like. Yeah, I like that too. So that was just something I thought was interesting. So yeah, so for Dickens, um, what are some other long books? So I think I will say quickly, yes. um, and this is just a plug, It's I think it'll all be online. So Dante, we were both saying, Dante. Yes, so I, I will confess, I had never read this all the way through, mm. but there's a really fun project going right now called 100 Days with with or of Dante. Yeah. Um, and you basically read, so, so Cantos and Dante mm-hmm. are... I think they're, they're between three and five pages. Yeah. So you read three cantos a week. Mm-hmm. And then this website, which you can mm-hmm. visit, 100 Days of Dante, um, they have a professor of literature explain, it, explain each it. canto. And I think it's so helpful because it's the thing with long books too can be that they're just a foreign context. Mm. And there's things you just try to enter in. I mean, trying to read Dante without any 
commentary is pretty hard because there's just a lot of cues you're not going to pick up if you're not a scholar of yeah medieval understandings and literature but it's so fun and so it's such a I think I find it such a commentary on my life yeah as I compare myself with Dante the Pilgrim and yeah you know the opening and his and also man who said to guide him says I come that you may be freed from fear Mm. and I just love this whole journey well, and something else i love about it too is that it dwells it thinks a lot about sins and vices mm. which is something we don't do a lot about lately no. but i think actually it's very helpful it's very freeing because if you think about if you don't think about sin anything we don't think about is more likely to control us right i think the things we can't name remain kind of as these vast formative presences yeah. and so what does it mean to actually sit down and say to name pride selfishness yes. gluttony how are those things controlling me? What does it look yes. like when that takes over a person? But then the opposite end of that is what does it look like when hope, yeah, love... Yeah, what is virtue? It's naming yeah. virtue and sin, which means everything is more specific, which means it becomes more real. Yes. And, okay, so two other books I want to name, and then um, I want to close this with having a very brief discussion slash possibly an argument with you. Oh, dear. <laughs> no, it's I fine. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prepare you for this. Uh, two other books, I think, uh, long books that mm. are... So if David Copperfield is like a good way in, mm. something that I think is good to aim for is I really do love Brothers Karamazov. I completely agree. I think if you want that, that is worth the work and it will be work. Yep. But it's worth the investment. It is a novel that really talks about the state of the human soul. And the thing is, it's quite a dark novel. Um, oh, it's very dark. Um, and so you should know that going in. And it's about, I mean. And it goes to, but it's meant to be, it's meant to ask the deep questions about the hard things. Yeah. And hatred and sin yes, and, and sin. evil. And, and, and um, Dostoevsky wrote it um, after he had kind of a difficult, he had a wonderful family. He loved God and believed in him. And then he, but he had epilepsy and he had all these, he had epilepsy when he was a young man. He, his whole literary circle got rounded up and they were going to be executed. Yep. And um, literally two seconds before he got executed, he was saved, but he had to go and live in these awful prisons for yep. years and years. So he had this experience of life that was very dark. And he had these two parts of himself, one part of him that wanted to believe in God and believe in his goodness, um, and one part of himself that just found it impossible. And Brothers Karamazov shows, and he was quite proud of it, both both of those things to their fullest extent, the yeah. problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, in as... And the problem of our own fallenness, I think. Yeah, and fallenness and brokenness and human error and evil. Yeah. Um, with that, also the acknowledgement of profound beauty and love, and how do we make sense of the these things together? And the argument of it, and how do you believe, and how do you act? Yeah, it's it is, it is one of those ones, magnificent ones that can form the way you see the world. Absolutely, and then Middlemarch as well, which is Middlemarch as well. Yes. So this is where I will end, and I I'm curious about something. Okay. So I also I should have asked you this like two years ago, so I might just be asking <laughs> a very unfair question when oh, I finished gosh. it. Um. So, as you said. The, the book is about the foibles and the questions and the um, the human heart. And that ultimately, on some level, people are driven by their desires. Mm. And in some ways, by their by their desires, by their need for self-preservation. That sounds like, a, mm. that sounds like a, a, a shallow way to put it. But what it really reminded me of, and I want to talk about this at some point, is, you know, do you know the theory of the elephant and the writer? Have you heard this? don't think I, I probably have, but I don't remember. That humans are fundamentally affectively driven and that, so it's, it's like our desires are the elephant and our rationality is the writer and the okay. writer can like tip the elephant, but like ultimately our desires are going to, an elephant is the thing that's driving, you know, and you see this throughout the book of mm. people 
talk a big talk rationally. Yeah. But ultimately, it's their desires and their... And many times, I think it's identifying and understanding their desires that it's a redemptive process for them. Mm. Whereas and not doing it is often a destructive process. Exactly. And, um, yeah, and I, I found Dorothea quite frustrating. I think she's supposed to be maddening at first. You're she's supposed to decide her she's a prig. Yeah, she is totally. Yeah, she's... She, she would drive... She is the idealistic spouting the, you know, all the... I'm that she's the kind of person that would drive all of us nuts. Yeah. But she's supposed to be. Yeah. Because part of the whole story, and to be honest, her choices mm-hmm. in that period of her life show that, show that she yeah, was not. Was, in fact, a prank. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> suffers profoundly for it. Yeah. And um, but part of that process of the story is her becoming not a prig in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so in reckoning with desire and reckoning with all those things. Well, I think one of the things I would say about that in the opening um, chapters mm. where Dorothy is the main character being yeah. described, it describes her as she desired to be a sort of modern day Saint um, Teresa. Yes. And I was going to say, but that's the thing is the book has this sense that amidst all of our desires, there is this fundamental desire. Yeah. The, and I think that was purpose. a true desire, but she thought it was going to be expressed in these ideals and this kind of it was a it was a performative asceticism and oh I won't wear dresses because it's too yeah and her sister Celia you kind of have to sympathize yeah. her with oh my goodness why don't you just wear the pretty dress I'm always I'm always very sympathetic to the shallow I sister who wants to wear sympathetic them. to her <laughs> but I think what's interesting about Dorothea is that she her process takes mm-hmm. her and this is I mean without giving away too much yeah. novel but her process takes her from the ideal of being a Dorothea to or, or uh, Saint Teresa to I actually love the stories of St. Teresa because she was earthy and honest yeah. and humble. And, you know, there's the story of how she, you know, in the midst of reforming the monasteries yeah. and the con- convents, she's crossing a river with some things and her wagon got swept away and she put her hands on her hips and said, well, God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. <laughs> and I think that Dorothea goes from having this ideal of the St. Teresa who sat in a cell and prayed all day and felt perfectly mm. to the reality of bumbling human beings mm. who are yet drawn through their bumbling to something mm. eternal and who increasingly as they follow it begin to mm. embody and reflect it. Mm. And I love all that and I believe all that. The thing that I felt dissatisfied at the oh, end dear. of the book, um, I had this sense that I couldn't tell if George Eliot really did think that those desires were eternal or were spiritual in some ways. Or she kind of just gave herself over to a very loving, very humanistic, naturalistic view in the world where you should bargain for the best that you can in this world because it's kind of all you'll get. Having actually studied this for a paper, like genuinely, Uh um, I think she was so dissatisfied with the religion of her era, Mm -hmm. and rightly so in many ways. Um, And the thing I like about her Mm -hmm. is that she left Christianity, and Mm -hmm. so she left... She even has says in a letter, I wish I could go back to worshiping Jesus. Mm. But she felt so incapable of doing that because of the, hypocr- the hypocrisy she saw. Um, but she, throughout her life, maintained, she said, I think there's a, a religion greater than we've yet understood. And I think, she, you know, part of me wants to say, well, you should have just gone back to Christianity Orthodox. Mm-hmm. But... I think that, you know, I've often wished I could bring her in conversation with mm. with theologians like from Balthazar or yeah. even Bonhoeffer or because I think they would have answered some of the cravings she had. Mm-hmm. But the thing I do like about her is I actually do think, I don't think she settles for a naturalistic mm-hmm. view of the world. I think she doesn't have the answers and mm-hmm. sometimes she puts too much emphasis on what humans can do, mm-hmm. but she still is living in 
an open-ended question. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's still... I think that's very much what I felt was it came to a... It hasn't been answered, and she's mm-hmm. willing to say it hasn't been answered yeah. for her. And in that way, you kind of feel like she has a bit of Dorothea in her. That oh, I think she I wants think to be ways. saved Teresa. And I think in many ways that's how she started out, and she mm-hmm. recognizes her journey from probably being a bit unbearable. Mm-hmm. I mean, she wrote her, her father a letter when she decided not to go to church and told him she would no longer be attending services. I mean, you can imagine her being a bit unsufferable as a, yeah. a newly converted to you know, everything yeah. young woman. But I think she grew quite humble. She was known as a mother in her mm-hmm. later days. Everybody called her, kind of talked about her as their mother. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what she's trying to portray in Dorothea is mm-hmm. this, this, you know, this gradual softening, softening. And I think that that's why I like the close of the book. And mm-hmm. you'll have to read the book now, but one of my great priestly mentors and friends mm-hmm. at Oxford says that he thinks the closing paragraph of the book is one of the best descriptions of, of real Christian life that he has yet read. Hmm. Well, those that is that is great praise, and I think would actually be a good way to end today's episode. And you have a copy of Middlemarch on the shelf behind us, so um, why don't we end today? First of all, thank you for coming on, Sarah. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure and a delight. So why don't you end today with the final paragraphs of one of our favorite very long books? Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Thank you for listening to Speaking with Joy. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, I would highly suggest that you subscribe, leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to tell a friend about it. I should also mention that I have a book coming out in February called Aggressively Happy, The Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And if you order it in the next month at my publisher's website, Bethany House Publishers, you can get it for 30% off. So you might want to consider getting a pre-Christmas present for yourself or one of your friends. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Speaking with Joy.